The following sermon podcast is a glimpse into the community of Central Bible Church, where we strive to welcome everyone into Jesus' life. We hope that you can join us for this Sunday service as we gather together seeking to live in and for Christ. been in the book of Ruth, um, a little subversive book. The title of the series is Subversive Kindness, the story of Ruth. We're starting chapter three today, and I don't know about you, but I, I this is quickly as I've studied it becoming one of my favorite books of the Bible. Um, I've so enjoyed. There's so much in this book that if you just, a cursory reading of it, you will miss tons of things, but an in-depth study you really start, it really just comes alive. Um, so really quickly, I want to recap a couple of things from the first two chapters. Um, we see, we have this character, Naomi. Uh, she's a widowed woman who has lost uh, both of her sons, obviously her husband. Um, she feels hopeless. She, feel like, she feels like God has left her with nothing. Um, she's bitter and angry and frustrated. Um, and then you've got this daughter-in-law of hers, Ruth, who is this foreign uh, Moabite widow who has decided to show Hesed love towards Naomi by staying, by giving her this rugged commitment to stay with her, to be with her, to care for her as much as she possibly can, even though uh, it, gi- it gives her nothing to do so. In fact, it, it could lead to her own demise. And so... You've got these two characters in these first two chapters, and then in chapter two, um, Boaz, this character Boaz is introduced, this potential redeemer, Um, and uh, you you see in the first two chapters, God is kind of everywhere, though he's not directly doing these miracles like he is in many other books in the Bible, um, you just see him moving in these weird coincidences. Um, One example, chapter two, verse Three, It says, uh, so she went out and began to glean in the fields, Ruth did, behind the harvest uh, harvesters. As it turned out, coincidentally, she found herself working in a field belonging to who? Boaz. What do you know, right? God is just moving throughout this story. And the first two chapters really show his movement. But the book on whole of Ruth is really the interplay between God's provision and our human choices, right? And so now in chapter 3 that we're beginning today, the book starts to shift focus towards our human decisions. And so there's this theme uh, in the book of Ruth. Uh, one of many themes, one of them is the theme of um, emptiness, uh, being in a place of emptiness and being brought to a place of fullness. And we see that in, in uh, Naomi, who, if you look In verse 121, she says, I went away full, but the Lord has brought me back empty. One of the things that happened in chapter 2 is that uh, the emptiness that she feels is literally a physical one. There's a famine in the land. She's short on food, sustenance. And what happens, but God provides through Boaz, showing Hesed love, this kindness, the subversive kindness, this kindness that goes above and beyond, provides tons of food, barley, grain, wheat, 
for Naomi, for Ruth. And so she's brought to a place of physical fullness. Um, But there's still another emptiness that she carries with her. The emptiness of being childless. Not having a family heir to carry on the name of the family. And so now we begin chapter 3. And the title of the sermon is Representing God to One Another or Representing God to One Another. It's the interplay of divine and human decisions working together. So I want to remind us quickly of this helpful chart that Oshawa had up last week. Um, And if you weren't here last week, I'd really encourage you to go back on the podcast, uh, listen to the sermon uh, if you can to get caught up. But he shows the differences between kind of our culture today and the ancient Near East culture. So the ancient Near East culture would be the the heading where honor, shame, right? And our culture is more of a guilt, innocence. Um, And we're going to see today that Ruth really bucks against three of the the five there in the honor, shame column. First, she's going to buck against the hierarchy cultural norm. Secondly, she's going to buck against that indirect sort of communication, the more passive way of communicating. She's going to be very direct. And third, uh, she's going to take risk, even though that's not something that's popular or looked at as a good thing. She's going to be a bold risk taker um, and kind of throw caution to the wind a bit in this chapter. So there's a shift of focus from Yahweh's providence to our human actions in chapters 3 and 4. And this kind of sums up this chapter. The book's teaching is simple and straightforward. Whenever people of faith practice God-like hesed toward each other, God himself acts in them. In such conduct, his will is done on earth as it is in heaven. When we show hesed love to one another, we are literally being God with skin on to each other. We are acting both as God and we are not doing it just in name, right? We represent God as ambassadors, but we don't just do it in title by words and saying, oh yeah, I represent Jesus. We do it in physical love, showing affection and care for one another, being ruggedly committed. And so with that, let's begin Ruth 3. Look at verses 1 through 3 with me. It says, One day, Naomi, her mother-in-law, said to her, said to Ruth, My daughter, should I not try to find a home for you where you will be well provided for? Is not Boaz, with whose servant girls you have been, a kinsman of ours? Tonight he will be winnowing barley on the threshing floor. Wash and perfume yourself and put on your best clothes. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he was finished. He has finished eating and drinking. Naomi feels this uh, sense of parental responsibility, right? She wants to see Ruth provided a home. And that word home in the Hebrew isn't just a place of shelter. She's talking a place of provision, a place where there's a husband, there's children, uh, there's long life ahead for her. And so Naomi recognizes that um, for Ruth, being a uh, poor, uh, Moabite, outcast widow right, in a foreign land, is already hard with Naomi alive. Uh, But Naomi's older in age and recognizes that if she passes, 
um, Ruth's chances of survival and, and being able to thrive um, decreased significantly. Look at verses 1 through 1, 8 through 9 real quick. It says that, Then Naomi said to her two daughters, Go back, each of you, to your mother's home. May the Lord show kindness to you, as you have shown to your dead and to me. May the Lord grant that each of you will find rest in the home of another husband. So you've got this prayer from Naomi earlier in chapter 1. And now she's making this plan here at the beginning of chapter 3. And it's like she's literally beginning to answer her own prayer. Naomi is seizing an opportunity, right? One day, Ruth's been in the fields uh, collecting harvest, getting a blessing from Boaz. She comes back with food. Days pass, and she, she's, Naomi is attentive to what God might be able to do during the threshing floor day. What could God do during this time? And then she acts. She seizes the opportunity. She's not passive, and I think that's a good word for us. Are we paying attention to what God is doing and what opportunities he's showing us? And putting before us. And are we willing to seize those opportunities and to act when we see them? We ought not wait passively for events to take place. We need to be perceptive and to take action. Notice that Naomi is doing this. She's making this plan. Ruth, get dressed up. Perfume. Wash yourself. Right? She's making this plan. And, and she's doing this based off of the kindness the Hesed kindness that Boaz has shown to Ruth and thereby extension Naomi earlier in chapter 2. So Naomi is acting out of the Yahweh that she sees in Boaz. Right? That's what's causing her to make these decisions and to say, Ruth, get dressed up, wash yourself, go. Maybe Boaz will commit to you as your husband. And so it is God and his goodness and his love as seen in the generosity of Boaz that causes Naomi to act. So, the threshing floor, right? What the heck is a threshing floor and what happens on it? Let me tell you. It says, I'm just going to read this verbatim because I, here you go. In ancient agricultural practice, winnowing was the festive, joyous climax of the harvest process. Harvested grain was first bundled in the field, then carried manually or by cart to the threshing floor, an open space of either exposed bedrock or hard stamped earth. There the grain was threshed, i.e. beaten with a toothed edge, sledge, trampled under animal hooves, or crushed under cartwheels. Cartwheels. <laughs> I just caught that. I don't know. The purpose was to remove the husks from the kernels. Winnowing then separated the kernels from the husks, chaff, and stalks. With a fork or shovel, the winnower repeatedly tossed the mixture into the prevailing breeze. The wind scattered the lighter chaff a distance away, and the heavier grain fell near the winnower. After being sifted with a sieve, the kernels were collected in piles, the straw fed as fodder to animals and the chaff used for fuel. There it is. That's what happens on the threshing floor. So verse 3, 
the narrator here, look at, look at what he says. Then go down to the threshing floor, but don't let him know you are there until he has finished eating and drinking. The narrator is purposely using language as Naomi is speaking to Ruth. Don't let him know. She doesn't say the name of Boaz, even though they've referred to him directly just a, a few verses earlier. The narrator is kind of doing something here. You're going to see language, uh, a more cryptic, ambiguous tone as the chapter moves on. And that's purposeful. And that's one of the reasons I'm so stoked about this book. It's like a literary masterpiece. The more you study it, the more you see how clever uh, the author is. So it says that Ruth is to wait until he has finished eating and drinking. Now, story. A while back, maybe probably last spring, myself and Russell and Isaac, uh, a couple of guys here, we've worked together cleaning windows. And um, we were at a job cleaning windows, and my wife uh, decided to, to show up and bring us some, a special treat that she had baked, a cobbler. And um, if you know Russell at all, Russell, he becomes a new person after a good meal. And it's just like a common thing between like Isaac and I. We just kind of sometimes make eye contact in the truck when we can kind of see the shift after lunch has happened and he's gotten some food. And, and <laughs> to, listen, my, my wife is a great baker. Um, but Russell said, because he was, this is how, he's just so enthusiastic. He says, that's the best cobbler I've ever had in my entire life. And he absolutely meant it. I didn't believe him, but... He, he definitely meant it. I don't know if he was right. Babe, you're a great baker, though. Um, <laughs> so that's, I think, the point is, we all feel a little bit better after a good meal, right? And so Naomi is being as strategic as she possibly can, right? She's not letting anything get in the way of this not working out. She's doing her very best. She's not leaving anything to chance. We're all happier after a good meal. And so she says to Ruth, don't just, get, don't just get washed up. Don't just put on your best clothes. But when you go down there, um, don't let him see you right away. Right? Don't be seen. Be careful that you're not spotted by somebody else who might misinterpret the situation. Um, but not only that, wait until he's done eating because he'll be in a better mood. So she's leaving nothing to, lose, to chance and she's calculated. And just quickly to, to address, I think, a question that I, I had it uh, before studying this. Why doesn't Ruth just go talk to Boaz during the day? Why does it have to be this kind of incognito thing? And it's just simply because it just was not culturally appropriate in any way for a foreign widow to go approach a man of Boaz's stature in front of God and everybody. You just would not do that. You wouldn't do it. Um, and so that's why the plan is to go about it this way. It would have brought too much shame and embarrassment upon them. Now, look at verse 4. When he goes, or rather, when he lies down, note the place where he is lying. Then go and uncover his feet and lie down. He will tell you what to do. Oh, what is going on here? Sometimes I wish we had like a Hebrew scholar, you know, that could help unpack what's going on in passages like this. And we do have one. 
and her name is Mackenzie Buxman. Uh, Mackenzie just graduated with a master's in biblical studies. She knows her Hebrew. She's going to come up and she's going to help unpack this scene on the threshing floor. Can we give a round of I just realized I don't know what button to push for the, the slides. The big one. The big, the big one. one. That would be obvious, but look at that. Sweet. Thank you. Uh, yeah, I get the opportunity of talking about the thing that most people are, it's their burning question when they read the book of Ruth. What the heck does uncovering his feet mean? Uh, there's a little bit of good news, bad news with that, but we'll, we'll get to that in a second. Um, before we, we get into it, um, I kind of want to set the scene a little bit more for what the, what the threshing floor, like what's happening, mostly more with like our, our context, biblically, all the stories we've read up to the point with the book of Ruth. Um, we've got a lot of stories of people just generally failing to uphold the law. But there's a couple stories that I just want to point out. In Genesis 19, we've got a, the story of Judah and Tamar. And Tamar is married to Judah's eldest son, and he dies. And in, in that culture, it was uh, custom for the next son to, to marry her and provide an heir for the dead brother. Um, but Judah doesn't let that happen. And so Tamar kind of has to get desperate and disguise herself as a prostitute, and she deceives Judah. There's a story of uh, Jacob's daughter, Dinah, in Genesis 34, where Prince Shechem sees Dinah in the field, and he decides that he wants to be with her, and so he takes her, and he rapes her. And then in Judges 19, that's our context for the book of Ruth, um, there's a concubine. She's married to a Levite, and the Levite sends her out to be raped, gang raped, and murdered eventually. And these are really hard stories to hear. And I don't tell them, I don't remind you of them to depress you, but simply to remind us, this is the context in which Ruth is approaching Boaz. The condition of the human heart and, and the context in which the story of, of Ruth occurs. And all these scenes kind of represent interactions between men and women gone completely and horribly wrong. The Judges 19 passage, that's our immediate context. And I want you to just feel the gravity of what Naomi is asking Ruth to do by going to the threshing floor. I tell you this because I want you to feel the risk of what Ruth is undertaking. I think it's safe to expect. Um, I guess also kind of mentioned later on, they don't want Ruth to be seen, that it's possible that women went to the threshing floor to have inappropriate liaisons with men. That was maybe not uncommon. And it would have been easy for Boaz to misread her intentions then or, or to take advantage of it. But Ruth, like Andrew said, she couldn't have approached Boaz in broad daylight about this. It was socially unacceptable. So not only is there this expectation placed on uh, previous biblical stories that this encounter is maybe not going to go super great, um, that it could go really wrong, but the, the context and the language that the author uses kind of seems to hint at a, at a sketchy encounter, that something sketchy is happening. But I think the author's intentionally using language that possesses kind of sexual overtones in order to contrast Ruth and Boaz with previous 
biblical characters. I think the Bible often uses contrast as a literary tool to reveal who God is and how we can be in right relationship with him and with each other. And I think that the author is doing that here. He's choosing language to highlight the choice that Ruth and Boaz both made to act out, not out of their brokenness, but to act out of righteousness and out of that, that hesed love. So this scene could have gone horribly wrong. Just keep that in the back of your minds. But the characters made a choice. They made a choice to act righteously and to participate in God's kingdom work. So let's dive back into the text. Let's look at verse 5. Or sorry, verse uh, verse 3. So Naomi gives uh, Ruth some instructions. She tells her to bathe, anoint yourself with oil, take off. If, I think she's referring maybe to her widow's garments and put on regular clothes. Don't let anyone see you. Wait until the men have finished eating and drinking. Wait until Boaz lies down. Pay attention to where he lies down. Go and cover his feet. We'll come back to that. Lie down next to him. But the most important thing I want you to notice in her instructions is she says, wait and let him tell you what to do. Very important. So verse 5. Ruth responds, all that you say I will do. So she went down to the threshing floor and did everything her mother-in-law told her to do. She's in it. Like, no questions asked. She's like, okay, I'll do it. And I think, again, that's that, that's that hesed love. We've been using that word a lot. If you guys don't remember what it means, we've talked about it as subversive kindness. But um, if you want to say it with me, I've taught it to you before, it's hesed. If you want to be really fancy, say it the really correct way. You can say chesed. There you go. I like that. Uh, so it's a relational word that communicates the quality that moves a person to act for the benefit of the other without respect to the advantage that it might bring to the one who expresses it. It's this stubbornly loyal, subversive kindness. You're going above and beyond for someone without a care for what it does for you. And that, Ruth's response just immediately, yeah, okay, I'll go do this. That's, that's an act of hesed. Now, okay, Naomi's instructions, they imply some sort of illicit sexual activity. You're like, okay, you're telling her to get all fancy and dressed up. And she's certainly taking a huge risk in having Ruth going to the threshing floor and to wait for Boaz to speak. But I think Naomi is clearly betting on Boaz to behave in, in his worthy character. He's described in chapter 2 as a man of worthy character. Boaz could wake up and he could completely misinterpret everything. Or he could shoo Ruth away and think she's super immoral and then spread like a misconception of who she is to the, to the whole town. But I think Naomi's confidence is in Boaz's integrity and in the hand of God. She believes that God is stronger than her doubt. And so both her and Ruth are, are taking a, a step of faith and they're going and Ruth is doing, she's following Naomi's instructions. So look at verse seven. When Boaz had finished eating and drinking and was in good spirits, he went over to lie down at the far end of the grain pile and Ruth approached quietly, uncovered his feet and lay down. So like Andrew said, you know, you don't want to come up to Boaz when he's hangry. You want him when he's happy and fed. So she waits for him to lie down. And it's pretty dark, 
So she's got to make sure she pays attention to where he's lying down. And she uncovers his feet. Now, there are some scholars that think that there's something sexual going on there. I don't think there is. I think it would have been out of character for Boaz. It would have been out of character for Ruth. And Naomi's trying to secure Ruth's long-term rest and security. It's not for the moment. So she wouldn't want something shameful to happen. But here's kind of the bad news. We don't really know what, why she uncovered his feet. Um, I'm like, well, maybe she wanted his feet to get cold so that he'd wake up. But we also don't really know that that's it either. And I also think it's not really the point. I don't think the author really wants us to, to focus on that. So I'm sorry I don't really have an answer for you. Um, I know I've studied for four years and I have no answer, but sometimes that's how it goes. But let's keep going because there's just something way beyond the uncovering of the feet that I just love about this passage. So verse 8. In the middle of the night, something startled the man, and he turned and discovered a woman lying at his feet. He rightly asks, who are you? To which Ruth responds, I am your servant, Ruth. Now it's at this point, you expect her to stop, because look at Naomi's instructions. He will tell you what to do. But what does Ruth do? She keeps speaking. <laughs> she doesn't wait. But I think inspired by Naomi's act of hesed to her, she now tries to find rest and security for Naomi. And she says to Boaz in verse 9, I am your servant, Ruth. Spread the corner of your garment over me since you are a kinsman redeemer. Okay, the fact that she's saying anything to Boaz is incredibly risky. Like I said, her being there at all under these pretenses is, he can completely misunderstand it. He is the master of the field. She's the servant. She's a, a woman, and he's a man in ancient Near East culture. He is a native Israelite, and she is a foreigner. The gravity of what she is doing by saying anything should not be lost on us. Her approaching him at all at the threshing floor is risky. But the fact that she doesn't wait for him to speak is riskier still. But I don't want you guys to hear that her actions were foolish. I don't think her actions were foolish or sinful in the eyes of, of Yahweh. But I think that they were foolish to her honor-shame culture that she's in. But in the eyes of Yahweh, her actions were courageous and bold. And they're marked even riskier, though, by what she says. So here's another phrase. You're like, what does this mean? Spread your wings, spread your garment. What is she saying? So the word for uh, garment can also be the word for wings. I'm going to have you say it with me as well. Kanaf. Kanaf, you guys are great. You're doing great at this. So it means wings or garment. Um, and it actually is this really beautiful idiom or, or euphemism in Hebrew. Um, and it can be, uh, it kind of means a gesture of a man covering a woman with his garment. And it's a symbolic act in the ancient Near East. And it signifies the establishment of a, a new relationship. And it's a symbolic declaration that he would provide and protect for his new wife. So she's proposing to him. Okay, that's a little, like, you know, women propose to men sometimes today. Back then, no, no. <laughs> we don't do that. 
especially not the threshing floor. <laughs> but she's proposing to him. But I think also go back to uh, chapter 2 and look in verse 12. Uh, she has been trying to, to gather food and she, uh, for, for her and Naomi, and she followed Naomi back to, back to Bethlehem. She could have gone back to Moab, uh, but she goes with Naomi to Bethlehem. And to this, Boaz responds, May the Lord repay you for what you have done. May you be richly rewarded by the Lord, the God of Israel, under whose wings you have come to take refuge. Boaz recognizes Ruth's choice to stay with Naomi as a choice to follow Yahweh, to come under his covenant protection. That imagery is so beautiful, you guys. And she's now using it and asking Boaz, I think asking him to act as an extension of Yahweh's wings, of his protection, of his covenant faithfulness by marrying her. But then look at what she says after, spread your wings. She says, since you are a kinsman redeemer. Now, what is that? So this Hebrew word, this is maybe a little tricker, goel. You say that? Good job. So this one, we're going to do a little crash course on Leviticus 25 and Deuteronomy 25. They offer these laws that are meant to protect two really important things in the ancient Near East culture. And those two things are the family line and land. Having an heir to pass on your, your culture, your heritage, your land to was really important. And thus, then having land to pass on to them was also really important. So in Leviticus 25, there's a law that requires a man to marry his sister-in-law should his brother die so that they can provide the dead brother with an heir. It sounds kind of silly to us. And we're like, well, that son would be the living brother's son, not the dead brother's son. But that's not exactly how they understood it. It was very important for them to, to carry on the family line. And then the law in Deuteronomy 25 protected the land of a man should he become poor and be at risk of having to sell his land to survive. And so Deuteronomy 25 says that the man's brother should buy the land from him and keep it in the family. And that brother in the text is referred to as a goel. So back to the story of Ruth. Boaz is not actually obligated to keep either of those laws because he's not a brother, but he's a close relative of theirs. And so it seems like Ruth is challenging him to keep the spirit of the law, not the letter of it. And she's directly asking him to marry her, but she seems to be implying, would you please redeem Naomi's land as well, so as to provide for Naomi? Feel the weight of that, guys. Naomi was trying to secure rest for Ruth, but Ruth is like, no, no, I'm not going anywhere without you. Ruth, a foreigner from Moab, she's clearly fully settled into Israelite law and custom. She's asking Boaz to go above and beyond what's expected of him. And she's citing Israelite law and custom and asking an Israelite to keep the spirit of the law. She's a woman approaching a man. She's a poor person asking a rich person to help her and her mother-in-law. Before we look at Boaz's reply, I just want to stop and I want to recognize something about Ruth's actions and what they teach us about God and about his people. Ruth's actions and her story in our Bibles shows us that Yahweh's kingdom does not care 
that Ruth is poor or barren or widowed or that she is a woman. She not only has a place in God's kingdom, but she has a significant role in its furtherance. And not just because of the air she produces in chapter 4, spoiler alert, but also because of her faith in Yahweh displayed through her actions, her acts of hesed to Naomi. Ruth shows us that God wants to use men and women to spread his gospel and his hesed love to all people. But let's look at uh, Boaz's response in verse 10. What's he going to say to her? The Lord bless you, my daughter, he replied. This kindness, this hesed, is greater than that which you showed earlier. You have not run after the young men, whether rich or poor. And now, my daughter, don't be afraid. I will do for you all you ask. All my fellow townsmen know that you are a woman of noble character. In this moment, Boaz recognizes Ruth's actions not as promiscuous or bothersome, but as the true act of hesed that they are. She has made all of her past loyal and kind acts towards Naomi even greater by trying to secure rest for herself and Naomi. And again, Ruth was under no obligation to stay with Naomi. We talked about that in chapter 1. She could have gone back to Moab and married a younger man, rich or poor. And I honestly think that suggests Boaz was probably a lot older than her. Not exactly what she was probably picturing for her life. But instead, she does something profoundly loyal and kind and self-sacrificing. And she seeks rest and security and protection for her and Naomi. And he kind of bolsters it. He goes on to say in his agreement with Ruth's plan um, that he's going to take the reins over now. He's going to see Ruth's act of hesed to fruition. And he notes that everyone in town recognizes Ruth as a woman of chayil. Can you say that with me? Chayil. Good job. There you go. She's a woman of worthy character. And it's the same word used to describe Boaz in chapter 2. He's a chayil man, a man of worthy character. Look at verse, verse 12, though. He keeps going. Although it is true that I am near of kin, there is a kinsman redeemer nearer than I. You're like, oh, no. The plan's falling apart. <laughs> but he says, stay here for the night, and in the morning, if he wants to redeem you, good. Let him redeem you. But if he is not willing... As surely as the Lord lives, I will do it. So there's a guy who's, who's closer in relationship. That would be the custom. It would be more appropriate for him to do it. But Boaz is going to take care of it. He tells her not to worry. And if the guy will redeem her, great. Everything's taken care of. She'll still be fine. But Boaz, he takes this oath. And he says, as surely as the Lord lives, as surely as Yahweh is a living God, I will redeem you. If he won't, I will do the thing that's not necessary, but I'll do it for you, for Yahweh. So the scene kind of comes to a close, and even though Ruth didn't follow Naomi's instructions to a T, I think we can all say that it's, it's good that she didn't. Her kindness and her faithfulness, backed by her willingness to risk and trust in Yahweh, they compel Boaz to do an act of hesed for her and Naomi. So with that, I'm going to welcome Andrew back up, and he's going to 
close us out here. Oh, glad it was you and not me that had to do that part. Just kidding. Um, okay, so we've just got a couple of minutes left. Let me, let's look at verses 14 and 15. Uh, it says, so she lay at his feet until morning, but got up before anyone could be recognized. And then Boaz said, don't let it be known that a woman came to the threshing floor. He also said, bring me the shawl you are wearing and hold it out. When she did so, he poured into it six measures of barley and put it on her. Then he went back to town. So six measures of barley is about 60 to 90 pounds of barley. It's a no-joke amount of barley. Um, I think that there's two reasons he did that. First, he's, he's showing more Hesed love, right? He's going above and beyond the subversive kindness. Um, secondly, I think that he's sort of protecting Ruth's image or reputation because she's going to be leaving probably just before dawn or around dawn, and so the chances of being seen are a little bit higher. And if she is seen, um, you know, carrying this giant thing of barley, 60 to 90 pounds, people aren't going to assume the worst, right? They're going to have compassion on her. Um, can you imagine as uh, Ruth gets back to Naomi in verse 16, uh, what Naomi must be feeling, right? Think about that. That moment, that, that night for Naomi that Ruth's been gone, and, and the, the anxiety, probably some pacing, can't fall asleep, checking the door to see if Ruth's coming, if she's home. Uh, what was the result? What happened, right? Verse 16, when Ruth came to her mother-in-law, Naomi asked, how did it go, my daughter? Then she told her, Ruth told her, everything Boaz had done for her. Everything Boaz had done. It's interesting because... Ruth or Naomi's essentially asking, hey, did, did, did you tie the knot? Like, how'd it go? What's, what's going on? And you imagine how Ruth is feeling. Um, it's possible that she might be feeling like a beaming young bride again, right, for the first time in years. Um, we don't know for sure. Again, the author is kind of ambiguous, but you wonder how they interpret this. And it's interesting because Naomi instructs Ruth at the beginning of the chapter to do what he tells you to do. Go and do what Boaz tells you to do. Listen to him. And it's actually Ruth, right, who tells Boaz, hey, I think this is what you should do. And, and then she comes back to her mother-in-law and says, here's, here's what he did. Here's, here's what happened. It's kind of an interesting play on what happened there. A takeaway for us. Obeying certain traditions or unspoken rules is always trumped by the subversive kindness that Jesus calls us to, right? It was not popular or wise necessarily in this culture for Ruth to do what she did to be as bold and as forward to take that kind of risk to tell Boaz, hey, I think that this is what you should do. And I think that she bucked against those cultural norms. And I think that the same is true for us. There is no tradition or unspoken rule that's too sacred. If it means showing subversive kindness, subversive kindness always wins. Now, verses 17 and 18 here in just a second. Verse 17, it says, uh, and, and added, Boaz did, so 
Ruth is recounting to Naomi what happened. All the author tells us that she says to her is, he told her, she told her all that he did. And then she puts in, the author puts in this detail. He added to me, he gave me these six measures of barley, saying, don't go back to your mother-in-law empty-handed. There's that word again, empty. That theme of emptiness to fullness, right, that I talked about earlier. Here it is again, that word. The narrator tells us nothing about the recap of what happened between Ruth and Boaz as Ruth is talking to Naomi. It leaves in this detail about this barley, though. Um, it's the same word, empty-handed, that Ruth or Naomi says back in verse, uh, chapter 121, right? The Lord has left me empty. There's two kinds of emptiness. The famine... Right, The physical emptiness that has been filled in chapter 2. But there's this other one, this childlessness that Naomi experiences. And most scholars view the gift of this barley, this barley gift, as a symbol of Boaz's determination to arrange Ruth's marriage. In chapter 2, think about it. In chapter 2, the, 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 the scene right, is all about the harvest. It's about food, supply. Chapter 3, what's, what's it about? It's about relationship. And marriage, right? And so it seems that Boaz is kind of leaving her with this grain or this seed, right, as a symbol and promise of offspring for Naomi. The author, again, is incredible in the book of Ruth. One uh, commentator says it this way the seed to fill the stomach, the, the, those six measures of barley, was promise of the seed to fill the womb. So Naomi's prayer is being answered from chapter 1. And now, finally, verse 18. Then Naomi said, wait, my daughter, until you find out what happens. For the man will not rest until the matter is settled today. Ruth was to await the harvest of her efforts from the previous night. Things rest in the noble character of this man, Boaz, now. Will Ruth have a redeemer? Will Naomi have a redeemer? Who will it be? Will it be this other closer kinsman or will it be Boaz? How will Boaz go about this? What's going to be the result? Will there be a child? Right? The author just leaves us hanging for next week. So good. God is present in this story where responsible human beings act as God to one another. God is present in this story where responsible human beings act as God to one another. They are looking and watching for what God is doing, and they take action. Naomi takes action. At the beginning of chapter 2, it was Ruth who says, I'm going to go out into the fields, right? And then she coincidentally runs into Boaz. In chapter 3, it's Naomi who takes action and says, Ruth, go to the threshing floor. We need to be perceptive of what God is doing. It's interesting because there's a clear implication of being aware and abiding in what God is doing throughout the story. Although the Holy Spirit is never mentioned, he's, like, he's, in plain, he's here in plain sight, right? Hidden in plain sight throughout this subversive little book. And so, as I wrap up here, and the band comes up, this is kind of the final takeaway. God carries out his work through
through believers, through you and I, who are looking for him and who sees unexpected opportunities as gifts from God. Often, the opportunities that God gives us, that the Holy Spirit gives us, are not things that we, that we expect or plan for. In some cases, they are. Right? In this story, clearly, Naomi planned, Ruth planned for things. But I think it's worth mentioning. Often, that's just not how the Holy Spirit moves. And so it is our job to be perceptive, to seek him, to be aware. I want to invite you to do that now as we get ready to take communion. And I want to ask you a question. Do you have a desire to be more perceptive about the opportunities that God is giving you to show Hesed love, the subversive kindness? Do you find yourself feeling like, I rarely wake up in the morning and say to God, Holy Spirit, what do you have for me today? Do you want to become that kind of person? I know I do. And I want to invite you, if you, if you feel that desire, to seek prayer. There's going to be some leaders, elders, pastors standing kind of around the perimeter. We would love to pray with you and for you that you would become that kind of person as we all are seeking that together. Amen? Pray with me. Father, we love you, and, and God, we thank you for your word and for this just gem of a book hidden in the pages of the Old Testament, God. Amongst, uh, in the time of Judges, God, and, and, the, and the craziness of that time, Lord, there's this incredible story of character and nobility and, and love and grace and subversive kindness. And God, these characters act out of the Yahweh, out of, out of the God they see in one another. That's what pushes them to, to take uh, advantage of the opportunities to seize the day, God, and to take risks. Jesus, I pray that you would help us to be attentive to your spirit, that we would be those kinds of people who are perceptive, who wake up every morning and say, I'm not going to tell you what to do today, God. I want you to tell me what you're doing. Show me where you're moving. Help me to listen that I might be able to act with Hesed love. Thank you for showing us that kind of love, Jesus, by giving your body and your blood for us and purchasing us as your sons and daughters. We love you. Amen. <laughs>